John 21, verses 1 to 19, and if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand to hear God's word today. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, which means twin. He had a twin brother, we, we think. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's John and James, and, the two, and two other disciples were there. I'm going to go fishing, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the way John has been describing him all along, describing himself all along in the gospel, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garments around him, for he had taken them off and jumped into the water. I always think of the movie Forrest Gump when I think that scene. He sees Lieutenant Dan on the shore and just dives right in, okay? The other disciple followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then Jesus said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. About a week and a half ago, I was in the midst of a run of track meets between the two boys. I think there were five track meets in seven days. And honestly, I'm kind of looking forward to the end of the track season here coming up. But in one of those track meets, one of the coaches, a guy named Claude, in the middle of the meet, just said, hey, you're a pastor. And I always wonder what's coming when somebody says, hey, you're a pastor. Where are we going with this? He said, you know, I've been taking Bible college classes at Grand Canyon University. I said, yeah, you know, you told me about that. And he said, you know, this last week, we were talking about love, and we were talking about the different types of words for love, and we'll get into this today. And he said, you know, I've been wrestling with what is it that really distinguishes or separates uh, love with, between Christians, Christian love, 
and love out in the world that anybody, unbelievers, anybody out there can show? Well, as I was about to answer that question, my bride showed up on the scene, and I introduced Beth to Coach Claude and said, hey, you know, we've been having this conversation. Claude was just asking, what separates out this, our love? And Beth said something to the effect of, we love when it's hard. And we love when there's suffering involved, when it's difficult. We go on loving because of God's love for us. The theologian of the house, the real theologian, got it quite right. She walked up in the stands to find her perch to watch Levi run that meet. And I turned to Claude and said, how about we grab breakfast together and talk this through some more? And he said, I'd like that. That story illustrates two aspects of this passage, uh, wondering about what Christian love is really like and what Jesus was calling Peter back into, and a simple invitation from Jesus, come, have breakfast. Jesus is all about relationship, and we've looked at this all along the way through the adventure of the Gospel of John. He wants to redeem and restore us, but also for a purpose, both for personal relationship with us, but for kingdom impact that redeemed and restored ourselves, we might be witnesses to God's power to do that in the world. Our foundational truth this morning is this, that everyone can recover and pursue God's design for relationship with them because Jesus reinstates people like Peter and you and me. And that everyone can recover and pursue God's design for relationship with him because Jesus reinstates people like Peter and you and me. Here, Jesus extends a great invitation. The chapter starts with the disciples having gone back to what they know. We're going to talk about this a little bit. Jesus has appeared to the disciples several times in Jerusalem, but now they go back to their familiar surroundings in Galilee. And seven of the 12 disciples were thought to have grown up and lived in Galilee, seven of the 12. And those seven, likely, had returned to Galilee to go back to what they know, to fish. Jesus had appeared to several times in Jerusalem. We're told in the Gospels that he appeared to 500 believers later in the Galilee area, to James, Jesus' brother, but now to seven of the disciples who went fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And all of it leads to a personal conversation with Peter because they clearly had unfinished business. Coming off of Peter's threefold denial of Jesus when Jesus was going to trial. There's a key word here that Jesus appeared or revealed himself to them. It's three times in the passage, and this is really all centered in what John's gospel is about. John's gospel is about how Jesus reveals himself to us as the Son of God in flesh, as he makes known who God is and the way he loves and the way he lives. And now... That revelation of Jesus is in resurrected form. This is him, redeemed and restored after his crucifixion and resurrection, and appearing to the disciples in a very familiar place. The implications are profound. That we have an opportunity to be redeemed and restored in relationship with Jesus, and that we all need that. Just remember, prior to the resurrection, the Lord had told his disciples that he would meet with them at an appointed place in Galilee after he arose. It's talked about in various places in the Gospels. Go back to Galilee and I will appear to you there. But due to the disciples' unbelief and fear, they had remained in Jerusalem for a while. It's no wonder. 
Just consider what they experienced over the last court last week of Jesus' life. They had been part of the heights of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem with coats laid down and palm branches waved. They had experienced the depths of agony in Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. They thought all was lost. They experienced the grief and sadness of thinking that their beloved friend and their, the one they believed to be the Messiah had died and that it was all over. But then they were swept up in the Easter joy of that new morning that Jesus had risen from the dead. But still, he wasn't with them physically in an ongoing way. He appeared to them several times. So they were still in a place of confusion, I would believe, a place of grief and challenge, wondering what they were supposed to do now. They did what they were told. They went back to Galilee. But as they waited there, they remained unsure and confused. So they did what they knew how to do best. They went fishing. Just think about Peter's emotional and spiritual state here as the chapter opens. He had failed Jesus miserably. He had promised to give his life, if necessary, to protect Jesus, but then denied even knowing Jesus a few hours later. I believe Peter knew that Jesus had forgiven him. But the question pressed on Peter's heart was, would Jesus ever trust him again? Could Jesus still use him to bring glory and honor to God? The chapter details how Jesus recommissioned Peter, calling him back into a love relationship with himself and calling him back into a ministry of teaching and caring for God's people. But just think about the psychological impact or perhaps benefit of this fishing trip. Think about all they had gone through recently. And it makes sense that they would go fishing to do something familiar, to get out into a space and place where they could kind of work things out. I think about the physical aspect and rhythm of fishing. And for me, running is probably the equivalent. It's how you go and physically work stuff out when things just don't make sense. Peter had been the one to initiate this fishing trip as he was often the initiator of the events in the Gospels. Peter says, I am going fishing. And what I love is that the other disciples say, we will go with you. They had walked with Thomas through his doubts, and now they walk with Peter coming off of his denials into what would be next. So what was the significance of Peter's decision to return to fishing? I think it's interesting that he's fishing for fish again rather than fishing for men. Remember that by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had invited Peter and the others, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. But instead of going out and fishing for men, they're back to their old trade of fishing for fish. Still, We can see that this would reflect what I would say is a human temptation to go back to what we know when life gets tough. It's all something we all do, isn't it? When things are difficult, we often return to what we know, to familiar experiences or circumstances. But here, in this instance, Jesus gives them a new experience of him in an old, familiar setting. Earl Palmer, who is an amazing preacher who passed away this last week, noted this. Peter said to them, I'm going fishing, and some interpreters find it difficult to imagine that the disciples, after two memorable encounters with Jesus in Judea, and having heard his command to go into all the world, would then waste time with fishing in Galilee. But Palmer says, I'm not so sure. It takes time for the pieces to fit together in a person's life 
especially if the way of discipleship has freedom in it. God is patient with us and he waits and he, he woos us, but he doesn't press us. Peter had the experience of the victory of Jesus and his resurrection, and he's glad of that true event. But it had not yet been fully victory for Peter. He had fallen hard in his denial of Jesus. And it often takes time for a person to resolve the feelings of depression that would result from a moral defeat like a denial. What can Peter do? He can go fishing. (laughs) And he can get out and get out in creation and do something familiar. It makes sense that Peter would do this when his feelings were at loose ends, but then it all gets transformed. We're told that that night they caught nothing, and I think this is symbolic of the reality that based on human efforts and attempts, we can't do anything. Jesus has told us this in John 15. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. On their own strength, at their own instigation, the fishing trip is fruitless. But there was Jesus on the shore, asking them, have you caught anything? (laughs) And I think that had to be sort of rubbing salt in the wound in a way. He's pressing into where they are. Have you caught anything? No. Could have been their response, not yet knowing it was Jesus. But then, like he did in Luke 5, he says, cast your net on the right side of the boat. And when they did, there was a great catch of fish. Immediately, John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, knows it is the Lord. Jesus had already given them the commission that he was going to send them out to continue to do what he was doing. But apart from being redeemed and restored, Peter had not gotten a hold of that commission yet. And on his own strength and ability, physically going out fishing, he had again caught nothing. But with Jesus, there's a great catch of fish. And it's likely to symbolize the great fruitfulness of their mission when they would go out and catch men and women for him. It's an indicator that if you allow Jesus to do the work in and through you, if you follow at his prompting and direction, there will be fruitful ministry. I've been thinking about these track meets and the joy of getting to see my kids do their thing, go running or do whatever. But really the fruit of it is the conversations that happen with people along the way. The opportunity to affirm and encourage kids, whether they did well or not, to let them know that they're loved and cared for, to let them know that they're seen. Because a lot of times, kids these days just don't feel seen. And that's what we're invited into, to be a part of God's work and what he's doing, to join Jesus in the spaces and places that he calls us to, and to allow him to work through us and then see a great harvest, experience a great catch of fish. I would encourage you to look back at Luke 5 and that first story of a miraculous catch. There, Jesus calls the first followers. and He says, hey, come and follow me. Uh, but he's then teaching in a boat by the shore. Peter and his friends have fished all night and they haven't caught anything. After he's done teaching and catching men and women through his teaching, he says, hey, let out your net for another catch. And there was a great catch of fish there. Now, in the middle of Peter's journey with Jesus, just as it had begun with a great catch of fish and Jesus' call upon his life to follow, there is another miraculous catch of fish. And it is enough for the disciple whom Jesus loved to say, it is the Lord. That smells like Jesus to enable us to catch fish like this. 
Peter, true to character, as I said, jumps out of the water, jumps out of the boat and into the water, swimming to shore. But isn't it interesting? Then it says that Peter helps bring the net in. I have this kind of sense that maybe he swam to shore, excited to see Jesus. But then the closer he got, the more he was remembering what he had done to deny Jesus. And rather than swim right up and give Jesus a hug, he actually turns his back to the catch and helps bring it in. I think the counting of the fish was their uh, process of taking time rather than really be confronted by the person of Jesus, particularly for for Peter. But remember, every one of them had, had, had turned and run when Jesus had been arrested. Remember that Thomas had, had doubted Jesus. All of them had reasons outside of the grace of God to not feel welcomed by Jesus. And so they take time counting fish. Now, this is what fishermen would do. Of course, they're going to count fish. And they're going to say they're large fish. Fishing stories grow by the telling, don't they? Every time they're told, they tend to grow a little bit. But that's what's happening here in part. But then there's an invitation from Jesus. Jesus gives them a new experience of him in an old setting through the catch. But then notice what he does. Notice how Jesus prepares to reinstate Peter and the disciples relationally. He invites them to bring the fish they have just caught to to add to the meal. Much like Jesus had done when he fed the 5,000, he could have just fed them. He could have produced food for them. He didn't need the other fish. He already has breakfast cooking. But he invites them to include what they brought, just like he did in the feeding of the 5,000. In the feeding of the seven or eight, he invites him to bring what they had to include it in the meal so that he could make even more out of it. And then there's the invitation, come and have breakfast. And there we're told, Jesus took bread and he gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. Doesn't that sound like the communion meal just a few nights before? Jesus is redeeming and restoring relationship with them. And remember that in the Middle East, and Eastern cultures, having breakfast, inviting somebody to a meal has even more profound implications than it does in our society today. I mean, we love getting invited to somebody's house. We love sharing a meal. But there, inviting somebody to have a meal is, I accept you. It's, I welcome you. I want to be with you. And Jesus is saying all those things when he says, come and have breakfast. N.T. Wright says, I am not an expert on mental health and the therapy that can produce it, but I do know a little about the healing of memories and the finding of forgiveness that can go back to a buried hurt, fear, failure, or sin and deal with it. He says, I have had the privilege of working pastorally with people and watching a deep unhealed wound that was gently exposed, dealt with in love and prayer and enabled at last to find healing. And that is what's going on in this chapter. Jesus, in a familiar setting, where he first calls them, invites them to come and have breakfast. And it's basically going back to that space and place where there was hurt and hardship and redeeming and restoring them in their memories. Peter insist, had insisted loudly and boldly that he would remain loyal to Jesus, that even if everybody else left him, he wouldn't. And he even said, I'll follow you and I'll go to prison for you. I'll go to death for you wherever you lead. He said, I am ready to lay down my life for you. 
But then if we remember back in chapter 18, Peter had denied Jesus three times in the moment. He, the one who was supposed to be the number one follower of Jesus, denied Jesus and the cock crows, as Jesus said it would, to sound out the reality of Peter's denial. But note some of the circumstances here. It says that Jesus was at a charcoal fire. Think back to the smell of that fire wafting through the chilly April air on the night that Jesus was arrested. Peter follows him into the courtyard, but then we were told that Peter was warming himself at the fire, and a servant girl asked, Surely you are one of them. You are one of his followers. To which he said, I am not. Three times by a charcoal fire, Peter had denied Jesus. And now, three times, Jesus would ask, Do you love me? Are you ready to come back? Are you ready to come home? Are you ready to recognize once more that our relationship is what truly matters? Just think about Peter. He knows he's blown it. He has the shame of betrayal and denial. He knows that Jesus knows. He knows that the disciple whom Jesus loved knows. He knows that God knows all he has done. And he knows that there's forgiveness possible in Jesus. But he also has the painful memories of the decisions he made, the hurts he had caused, the confusion he had entered into. And it's only in Jesus bathing him in those memories and redeeming and restoring him in that space and place where he could find healing. We could say the charcoal fire is the start of it, but then Jesus enters into this experience of renewal and invitation more deeply with Peter. It's an invitation to come and have breakfast, but it's also an invitation to renew his initial call. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It's essentially saying to Peter, are you ready to give up fishing for fish? And are you ready to start reaching men and women for me? And you know, this is at the heart of the gospel. Those spaces and places in our lives where, it is, where we have the most painful memories, the spaces and places where we most blew it, are the spaces and places that Jesus wants to penetrate with his grace. And often it goes back to that hurtful memory or experience where prayerfully we can find where Jesus was present at that time, even in the mystery of it. And we can see how Jesus was at work then in leading us into our lives and where we are now. And I'm going to tell you this, that Peter's eventual ministry of feeding and caring for God's people became richer because of his redemption. In other words, if Peter hadn't blown it and hadn't been restored, hadn't gone through this experience of forgiveness and healing, I don't think he would have been ready to lead God's people. He probably would have been prideful. He probably still would have said, hey, I'm the guy. I love Jesus more than anybody else. But knowing he had blown it, he was now ready to lead people who blow it. People like you and me. People like the other disciples and people like those that Peter would encounter what else is significant about the way Jesus reinstates Peter? I like that he asks him a question. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Notice that he calls him Simon. He doesn't call him Peter right now. Simon means shifting sand. 
Peter means rock. Peter had not been a rock lately. He had been like shifting sand. But now, calling him Simon, identifying with where he is, he's inviting him to become rooted in God's grace and mercy once again and to become Peter. A rock-like foundation that the church would be built off of. Notice that he asked Peter to feed his lambs out of love for him. He asked Peter to take care of his sheep out of love for him. All that he was inviting Peter to do was meant to come out of the love relationship that they would have. Jesus does this three times, mirroring the three-time denial that Peter made of Jesus. It's like he's got to go right back through those denials in order to become restored. And the type of love here is significant. The first time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He's using agape, unconditional love and favor. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He uses the word phileo, brotherly love and affection. The second time Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And again, it's agape. It's, hey, are you going to love me unconditionally? Are you going to love me sacrificially? Are you going to love when it's hard like I love you? And Peter again says, Lord, I love you. But it's brotherly love. It's affection. So then the third question Jesus asked, third time, he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, phileo. He says, do you at least have affection for me? Are we friends? And Peter says, yes, Lord. You know all things. You know that I love you. And again, he's using with brotherly love and affection. But then Jesus says, follow me. And in following me, people are going to lead you where you don't want to go. You're going to face circumstances and situations you do not want to be in. Somebody is going to lead you where you don't want to go. They're going to dress you in a way you don't want. And they're going to stretch out your hands. And what Jesus is talking about is the fact that Peter would eventually be crucified. But Peter would be crucified upside down, history tells us, because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way Jesus did. Peter's love is going to become agape. He's going to move beyond just a simple warmth and affection for Jesus, and his love is going to become sacrificial, and his love is going to become when it's hard. And it's going to become the type of love that I was talking about with Coach Claude. What separates Christian love? We love sacrificially. We love when it's hard. And we love like Jesus. And friends, that's the adventure. To know that we're loved that way by Jesus and we are restored and redeemed by Jesus because of what he has done. But also to know that we're called to go out and reflect that kind of love. Even when it's hard. Even when it's most difficult. Because when we do... We can experience God's redemption and rescue each and every day of our lives. We can be made new, and life can be good once again. Friends, my hope and prayer is through this adventure in the Gospels of Jesus, you know more fully what it means to follow him. And you know that that's not going to be easy. But you also know that it's worth it. Because God gave what it was most worth and value to himself, his one and only son, for you and for your salvation. He's immersed you in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that you could find life in him. But then he calls you to go and feed, to go and teach, to go and care, and to follow Jesus into hard places because the world needs to know that they can be restored and they can be redeemed. And they haven't done anything that God's grace can't cover and forgive. 
So may we be empowered with this gospel to go out with strength and courage to share the good news of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Every time I try to make it on my own Every try and try to stand and start to fall And all those lonely roads that I have traveled on There was Jesus When this life I built came crashing through the ground When the friends I had were nowhere to be found I couldn't see it then but I can see it now There was Jesus In the waiting, in the searching, in the healing, and the hurting, like a blessing buried in the broken pieces. Every minute, every moment, where I've been, where I'm going, even though I didn't know it or couldn't see it, there was Jesus. For this man who needs amazing kind of grace Forgiveness at a price I couldn't pay I'm not perfect so I thank God every day There was Jesus In the waiting, in the searching, in the healing Blessing buried in the broken pieces Every minute, every moment Where I've been and where I'm going Even though I didn't know I couldn't see it There was Jesus on the mountain In the valleys In the shadows, in the alleys In the fire and the flood Yeah.